Welcome to Mindset in Motion, a podcast discussing the ideas, pathways, and innovation shaping the future of higher education. I'm your host, Bill Heinrich. This podcast is hosted by Orbis, supporting higher education and data-driven experiential learning. Welcome to Mindset in Motion, a podcast where we discuss issues in higher education, equity, and student success. We're happy to be here today with Beth Foraker from the University of California, Davis. Beth is the founder and co-director of the Redwood Seed Program at University of California, Davis, and we're happy to have you here, Beth. Thanks for joining. Hi, thank you. Excellent. We're really excited to hear about the Redwood Seed Program and its focus on inclusion and career training for students with intellectual uh, differences and disabilities. And for our listeners, I found this program because uh, my own daughter has Down syndrome and would this is the kind of program I'm thinking about for her future. She's eight, so it's a little bit far off for now, but I'm still excited to hear about these programs. So Beth, can you tell us how, tell us about you and how your career led you to founding uh, the Redwood Seed Program at the University of California, Davis? Sure. So I am an educator by training. I was a classroom teacher in elementary school in California, got my teaching credential at UC Davis in the 80s, began teaching all through the 90s, and then in, and I have four children. So I job shared while my first two children were small. And then I had my third child, who's Patrick, who has Down syndrome in 1999. And he was born with a heart defect. So I took a year off of teaching because he was going to need open heart surgery and specialized care as an infant. And then uh, mostly, truthfully, was my uh, daughter, my second child was four and it was her year before kinder. And so I was really sentimental about her starting kinder. And so I had that year off. I took another year off because I really, turns out when you have three kids, it's really nice <laughs> to not be working and to be supporting your children. And so that was wonderful. And then Patrick got leukemia right before he was about to turn three. And so I just kept, you know, I did, I wasn't working. I just was supporting, you know, having three kids and my husband and our family life. So that is a three year process, which I, you know, is wonderful because it can be uh, very positive outcomes, but it is a really long and arduous process. But he got through it and then it looked like he was going to start kinder. And then we thought, why not have another kid? <laughs> So we had another baby uh, that year because, you know, what? <laughs> why not? And um, Caroline was born in 2006. And then in 2006, I was approached by UC Davis to be a supervisor of education and help teachers become teachers in our credential program. Because in California, you get your undergraduate degree, your four-year college degree, and then you need a fifth-year, more specific kind of education training and then time in the classroom. And so I worked in that fifth year of study where they get a teacher's credential and there's a next little chunk where they get a master's. So I worked in that program all the way from 2006 to 2021, till last year, uh, helping teachers become teachers. And, you know, my son Patrick was fully included and then he was graduating 
from high school and he was earning a California high school diploma and there the transition options for him within, within our program locally weren't very good and the, the school district said these aren't very good for you and why don't you look and see what other options are available and I had had friends who had begun college programs in 2010, President Obama created federal funding for these programs. So I had watched different educator friends develop these programs across the country and knew about these college programs. And so we just started looking. My son applied to an inclusive college to three different programs across the country. And I always wanted a program here at Davis because our like I said, our, our school district has been fully inclusive since the 1960s. Our city is very, very inclusive. We're a bicycle friendly, you know, very accessible transportation wise city. And then it just made sense that the, the university would offer accessible educational opportunities like this too. And so we were able to put together a grant in 2020. What's cool about our grant is our grant is a collaborative effort between UC Davis and UC Davis Health using the Mind Institute, which is an mm -hmm. autism research institute together. So our program is a collaborative effort between diversity, equity, inclusion on campus and the Mind Institute. So leveraging both um, big giant organizations to help these students. And we were given federal funding in 2020 and asked to welcome students in the fall of 2021. And my partner, who we wrote the grant together, Dr. Len Abadudo, was like, well, I think you got to run it, Beth. <laughs> I was like, um, I don't think so. I'm really good at supporting teachers. And um, he said, think about it. If you don't run it, someone from DEI on campus will just like get this dropped in their lap they won't know what to do because no one knows about these programs. You kind of got to do it. So that is what led me to become the co-director of this program. Yeah, that's all. It's funding. It's all funding games to get the money, and then you got to do something. Now you got to spend it, right? Like that's yes. uh, that's the old grants adage. Yeah. Well, congratulations on getting the funding and opening the program. I know that's no small feat to open a new program in an institution, especially when. You are adding essentially an academic program to the roster of available offerings. Okay, yeah. let's go slow on that. Uh, make sure we unpack some of those details because, yeah, the focus on your focus here on change and organizations, I think, is really interesting. Um, you know, focus on having a DEI and inclusion focus is really, po really powerful. So, tell me a little bit more about the Redwood Seed program. So, what you know, what does it do? How does it work? And who does it benefit, intended or otherwise? Yeah, so our program is designed for students in California. So it is only for students in California um, who have intellectual disabilities. So the funding is only for students with intellectual disabilities. So you do have to have a documented intellectual disability, whatever that looks like. And um, our students are not getting a bachelor's of arts or a bachelor's of science degree. So they, they are getting a different credential that we're developing with the Mind Institute. And it probably most likely will come from so we've had to create our admissions portal through continuing and professional education, kind of their extension piece of UC Davis. Our goal is to, at the end of five years, so our grant is for five years. At the end of five years, we want to approach the UC regents, so University of California regents. They don't j let you just do things 
you know, campus by campus. It has to be uniform through all the universities of California. We're the only four-year inclusive college program within the University of California system. So what we would like is to create, after having five years, kind of approach the UC regents and say, we would like to have an application portal through within the UC system, not outside its extension, and then be true matriculated students that way. So that's our ultimate goal. But because we had to get going so quickly, we used this kind of workaround with continuing a professional ed. Our students' transcripts are housed in there. And most likely the original people who are our, our current sophomores who will graduate, they're most likely will graduate with a credential from CPE. Matriculating students through the extension side of things, continuing ed, makes a lot of sense to get a program started. Yeah, this doesn't happen overnight. So tell me, so one of the things I read on your, read along the way uh, with the announcement of the opening was some pretty impressive numbers, some pretty impressive outcomes for students and specifically their careers who undergo job training like this. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm I'm curious, like, Tell me about those numbers. Tell me about the career implications for training in a program like Redwood Seed. Yes. So currently, if you go to the California Department of Developmental Services website, you will see a very old circle graph. And that circle graph is from 2011. But the reason it's still on there is the numbers stay steady. They don't really change. And it's a very depressing graph because it shows several hundred thousand adults with intellectual disability in our state and what they're doing with their time as adults. And only 3% of them make a living wage. So 97% in this graph do not make a living wage. In fact, most of them are sitting at home doing nothing. A few, uh, another big chunk are in day programs, which are slowly being you know, remodified and changed. At the time of this graph, sub-minimum wage was still allowed in California. That is no longer allowed, but it is still allowed across the country federally. And then we had a few, about 5% were in supported employment, but only 3% were making a living wage. So this federal funding that President Obama created in 2000. 10 was to fight that, to somehow try something different. And so his premise was, what if we put these people on college campuses, start really offering them academic and independent living and social inclusion and employment opportunities? What's going to happen then? And we now have a lot of data because these programs have come on uh, really quickly within the past 10 years. And we have a lot, hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of students and their outcomes. And that number from 3% moves to between 65 to 80% of graduates make a living wage after graduation. So it is a, just a complete trajectory change. Yeah. I mean, I can just tell you just from my own very short you know, we've, we're only welcoming our second cohort. So we have, you know, nine freshmen, nine sophomores, and now 12 incoming freshmen. But watching what happened for the nine over this year was a complete trajectory change. And there is no doubt in my mind that all nine will graduate if they want, you know, if that's their interest yeah. uh, with a, a living wage. That's incredible. So, so to repeat that, 3% of individuals in California with with an intellectual disability were earning a living wage without training and post training we're seeing did you say 70 to 80% is that rough 65, 65 to 80% that's amazing right like we would 
Yeah, that's that's incredible. So the outcomes are positive. The outcomes are real. They're tangible. Uh, definitely makes a big difference. One thing I want to tell you, I didn't really get yeah. to tell you about program so our program is a comprehensive program so our students come and they live on campus in the dorms with other first-year students they take foundational courses that are meant for them so just their cohort takes those classes there are six of them so those are literacy math sexual health self-regulation emotional regulation communications and technology and civics and social justice Now, here's the whole other piece I didn't tell you about that graph. When you look at that graph with the 3%, the other thing that's haunting is to think that none of those people have representation in our city or state or federal government. Not They're not sitting on a school board. So we've all just agreed as a society that people with intellectual disabilities do not have lived experiences, insight, problem-solving capability, or important ideas to change our society for the better. We've all agreed on that, which makes no sense. So this number cannot change unless people who do have representation decide to make it change. So the civics and social justice piece is to give our students the skill set so that they can understand how policy changes and they can advocate with allies for significant Um, movement forward for access and equity. So they take those six courses. They take UC Davis courses in their area of interest. They participate in campus clubs and organizations or faith communities. And then they, the big piece is they have employment opportunities starting the spring quarter of their first year. And then every quarter thereafter building uh, more time on the job, building more understanding of what their skills and assets are and how they want to use those in the workplace, and more understanding of what a, a job, a full-time job entails, so that by the end of the fourth year, they can slide into a job that makes a living wage. Got, got it. So a comprehensive training program, uh, really in-depth programming, really interesting so you started it, I mean, after the grant, you you started a new program. It sounds like that's in its second operational year. I mean, having worked on campuses for a lot of years and big, you know, UC campuses, in fact, among others, that's no small task. So how did that go? <laughs> Part of our, our podcast focuses on operations. Like, how do we get things done? You know, we're in the middle. We're not in charge yet, but we have some opportunity to do some something interesting, uh, you know, make some good changes. Um, so how does that go? And like, what are the relationships like? Like, what are the negotiations? Like, how does that go and how does it feel? And I'm, I'm, I'm more interested. I mean, I'm interested in general from a change standpoint, but from from your your ethos here of presenting this as a moral imperative to include people in society, include individuals with intellectual disability you know, as a decision-making group, like, yeah, that's, that's no joke. Like, how do we change people's mind as part of building a program? What happened was when we wrote, wrote the grant, we, because I had worked with the school of education for so many years, I really expected the school of education. We have a college of education, you know, to support our program. But at the time it was May of 2020 when we were writing the grant and it was truly the collapse of higher education at that point. Many, many people could not imagine how a higher education could endure, 
you know, the lack of students, um, the lack of inclusive living, you know, living socially together. They just didn't, couldn't picture what the future held. And so they were like, sorry, we can't, you know, we're still trying to help people adjust to online learning. You know, we can't do this right now. So I really was stuck um, with who else on campus could support our program. Now, the Mind Institute was fully on board and wanted to do it, but they're in Sacramento, and I live in a city called Davis, out, outside of Sacramento. So our campus is in Davis. So I reached out to Think College, and it was Deb Hart at Think College who said, why don't you approach diversity, equity, inclusion on campus and see if they would be interested. At the time, it literally was the end of May, which is when uh, the George Floyd killing had occurred. And we were having a giant uh, racial reckoning and a giant, you know, tsunami of um, protesting happening all across the country. Our chancellor, whose name is Chancellor Gary May, is black. The head of diversity, equity, inclusion on campus, the vice chancellor, her name is Renetta Tull. She's black. So, and and many, many, obviously, our large, diverse campus, many people. So they were in the throes of that and really dealing, I mean, holding, you know, memorial ceremonies and listening sessions and all sorts of things. And then I'm coming along being like, hi, have you ever heard of inclusive college? And like, would you by any chance want to be part of that? So I honestly... Um, give so much credit to Renetta Tull, the vice chancellor, who didn't really know about these programs at all or understand. I mean, she understood the core inclusion and equity piece, but didn't really understand what that all looked like. And she just said, yes, yes, um, let's do this. Yes, you can use our everything that we have in the Office of Diversity and Inclusion. We will support it. Yes. And the minute she said that, of course, so many doors unlocked. So our chancellor wrote a letter of support uh, because he understood the equity mindset that is needed. Um, he understood the underrepresentation and underserved needs of these students, and he understood their value to the larger campus community. So he was on board, and Renetta, our vice chancellor, was on board. And when you have those two key leaders on board, Everything is so much easier. Of course, we did have people who did not understand why our students would be in campus who believe, you know, we're an elite institution who should only be serving elite students. And I guess in their mind, that means, you know, highly achieving intellectual students um, and didn't see the reason for our students. But continuing a professional education was immediately on board. Vice Chancellor DEI was immediately on board. And then housing, which I will just say most campus programs don't get housing until three, four, five, even 10 years after they begin. To begin with housing after the year of COVID, where there was so much pressure on housing for returning students who had deferred and incoming students who were coming in, to have housing give spots, you know, uh, to our students was a huge stake in the ground of affirmation of equity. And um, housing, the head of housing had been an RA at a, a university in Colorado where he had had a student with autism on his floor and he saw the value add to that student. And so when the opportunity came to him, he said, yes, right way, we'll do it and we'll figure it out. So, and housing has been absolutely incredible. Um, and so I just believe the time was right the because of the George Floyd 
I guess, you know, catastrophic event, a lot of people were rethinking and reframing opportunity and really personally reflecting on what they had done to make those opportunities happen. And so I think the the willingness was there because of, I always say it took a global pandemic, the collapse of higher education and a racial reckoning to soften the heart of UC Davis to welcome all these students. Uh, and that's, that's what happened. Here we are. And I'm, I'm grateful for it. I, I'm encouraged that folks can see, see this layer of work and equity work as, as important. I'm glad there's funding for it. I'm glad there's a lot of people saying yes. That is, yeah, those are, those are some key uh, leaders on campus who can really literally open doors to housing, right? Like <laughs> they have the physical keys. <laughs> Or the key yep. courage, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, it's no metaphor here. We're just going to go right for the door. Yeah, that's that's quite amazing. That's a really compelling story. I'm, I'm I appreciate you contextualizing it, and because I think we forget how our institutional communities, our university communities, are really connected to the larger global issues, right? Um, I mean, we knew that. I think the pandemic really illustrated that. But there's no, you know, before that, you may might have been able to hide from this or that, but at this point, we can't do that anymore. That's that's really compelling. Thanks. So you indicated that there were some naysayers along the way, and I'm kind of curious, not about those individuals, they're not terribly interesting, but what are the patterns that you see in your institution in particular that create challenges and how does that show up? I do feel like this is really interesting because the pattern generally, because I also on the side run a nonprofit that helps Catholic schools be inclusive of okay. students with inclusion. And the the patterns of no are usually like, you know, we just don't do this. So we don't, we it's no big deal. Like we just know, right? Mm-hmm. So same with universities, like we just don't do this. <laughs> students aren't meant to be on college campuses. No, right? But enduring COVID and watching how, Everybody had to think outside the box and break down norms that we had all just agreed on that were just norms we had never really considered before, like working from home. Like, why why was that so difficult before COVID, right? We had the technology, but we had just never questioned this norm that uh, and the moment required us to question. So the, it's a benefit to be after COVID where we've shown we can problem solve and break these barriers down. And are these barriers really serving us or is the barrier serving itself? So, you know, when I was having, you know, challenges with people and they would say, well, just no, you know, that the technology just won't include these students. We can't include them. I'd be like, well, you know, that that might have been true prior to COVID, but you and I have lived through COVID. So now we know we can. Like if if we can't include them technologically because of whatever system, we know that there's some sort of workaround because we've lived through it and watched it happen. So I feel like people are better problem solvers now. There still are resistors, but we've all just watched barriers break down and we've all asked the question like why are we having this rule is this rule really serving us so i i just i feel like all the challenges are once we talk about that many people are open to like yeah why do we have that rule let's think about it let's talk about it and they're much more willing to talk about it now and maybe consider not having the rule anymore that's what an incredible time to be in in higher in public higher ed where you can make some change totally <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah the collective experience and reflection of oh yeah we just did this didn't we 
That's super powerful. Really fun to hear as an experiential learning person. I'm like, whoa, yeah, right. That would make sense. We just had this, this huge societal thing that happened to all of us. If we think about this going forward, how are institutions really going to change? Like how, are, if we think about inclusion, careers, access to relevant educational experiences, yeah, how, like, what do we anticipate, like, maybe structurally getting an admissions program, like you said, you know, sorted out for the whole UZ system? That's no small feat. I mean, that's nine <laughs> right. undergraduate campuses plus who knows whatever other programs that are out there. I mean, there's a lot there. Yeah. But what, what do you anticipate institutionally changing? Well, one thing that I'm really excited about is this employment piece. Because we have a, a ton, we have 66,000 people with intellectual disability who are between the ages of 18 and 26 in our state. 66,000 people with almost essentially nothing to do. So just the idea of opening all of our giant universities of California, all of our Cal State universities, all of our community colleges, all of our public health facilities, giant med schools, you know, and hospitals and all that, to potentially employing these people is a, a game changer. And so UC Davis, we took, so spring quarter of UC Davis, we took our nine students and we said all over campus, you know, we want campus partners who are willing to welcome our students in employment opportunities. None of us knew how it would work. Only one of those students had had any kind of job experience at all. So we just said, we're just asking for three hours on a Friday and you don't have to pay them because we don't know how this is gonna work. And so they went, our students went to the UC Davis Police Department, UC Davis Media, the big recreation center, uh, the craft center, outdoor adventures, UC Davis Women's Volleyball, UC Davis Library. So they went all over based on their interests and skills. And all of them, all nine, had a fantastic experience, loved it. So they wore, you know, professional dress. So they had their special UC Davis polo that they wore. They had special professional pants, special professional shoes. Their their hair was just right. You know, they made sure and brushed their teeth. They <laughs> ate a good breakfast. You know, they were on fire to do a good job. And then what was super heartening was we have all these mentors that are undergrad mentors or graduate school mentors or even some med school mentors, which is the whole goal, right, for really changing systems. So we asked the mentors, do any of you have a special relationship with any student where you would be willing to come on Fridays for three hours to support them in their employment? And all nine of our students had somebody say yes, they did. So they got an, a mentor who already had a great connection with them to be their first employment mentor. And for our mentors to watch how our students rose to the occasion and really thrived in this employment setting was also very invigorating for them and exciting for them. So then we said, you know, there's a lot of data now that these students need to be paid and they need to understand their time is valuable and that they they get paid. So now we're going to ask these, you know, we said, any of you willing to pay our students out of your budget, not ours or not from the state of California, you guys. All nine said yes. All nine see the value in our students. And what was so powerful was the craft center said, we're, we're a whole volunteer organization. Nobody gets paid. 
but we'd be willing to pay her in classes. Would she accept payment in classes? And again, there's that problem solving from COVID, right? Hey, we can figure it out. We don't have to be like, absolutely not. We're only volunteer and nobody gets paid and then shut you out. Well, let's think about this, right? What could we do? What is payment really? And this student was very motivated to be paid in classes because she's an artist and enjoys things like that. And so all of our students, now not all of them will be returning to those different places because they're willing to try something else, but the ones who are returning will all be paid. And then now we've had other parts of our campus. So the vet school who has employs 2,000 people, the vet school said, there's no reason your students could not be employed by us. Please come and know what the vet school does. And these are the different parts of the vet school. They yeah. came and spoke directly to our students about the different opportunities. And we will have some of our students in the fall working at the vet school. The lab school who works with human development and child development was like, absolutely, we should have your people here. So it's just growing and growing and growing. And seeing what's happening at Davis helps me know that these employment opportunities with real living wages are everywhere in all communities. They've just never really considered these people to be valuable employees. And um, our students are always on time. They're not on their phones. They're hardworking. They're reliable. They're super open to feedback. And they want to work. And so they are really fantastic employees. And I think um, the more that they're in workplaces, the more workplaces will want them. Yeah, it's a it, the learning how to support individuals with intellectual disabilities is a two-way street, right? We learned, the, we learned how our own programs don't probably currently support individuals like that right. all the time. We're seeing that a lot with our daughter in, um, you know, in typical school programs. Every year, new teacher, like, hey, <laughs> of course, right. let's play this game right. again. But, but yeah, <laughs> until more folks understand it, the systems don't really budge. And that's a, that's a key, right. that's a really key, um, key feature I'm, I'm sensing in your, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what I would call an agenda, right? Like the agenda of, of systems change and institutional change. Um, that's that's really encouraging. Thanks for sharing that. Are there other things about the program that I haven't asked about, like things you want to share, like successes or really interesting uh, surprises that you've uh, encountered? There's been so many, so much learning in this first year, but one um, huge piece was the ability. So there, there's different kinds of models for these programs, but we're a cohort model very intentionally. So we have these nine students and then they're taking their courses together and then they're slowly breaking out right into the larger community and watching the them because they are a cohort support each other and problem solve together and figure out ways for different students to be successful or or triggers that might cause like a behavior or cause a difficulty. How can we prevent that? It's been really incredible to watch, uh, watching our mentors be absolutely the best problem solvers, the most equitable, the most dedicated to supporting our students has been absolutely riveting. I feel like this particular generation of student understands the the lack of representation and how important this is and why they want to be part of it and support it. One of my favorite stories was a student who, it was just about spring porter and she was going to, had to leave her class early. She had to ride her bike across campus 
which is difficult. Uh, bike riding at Davis is like skiing the diamond slopes, can be very difficult. And she had to meet the person where she was going to be doing her job in the spring quarter. She would be supported with our employment director. So she didn't want to do any of those three things. She didn't want to leave class early. She didn't want to go meet the guy. And she didn't want to ride her bike. And so she's like, no, I'm not going to do that. And it's like, well, you know, you signed up for college and college means doing hard things. So actually you are going to do that. So how can we support you? so that you can do those things successfully. We want you to feel supported, but you are going to do those things. And so we talked about asking to leave class early and how she could do that where it wouldn't feel so difficult. And then we talked about writing, like not if writing didn't feel safe to her, how could she start with somebody writing alongside her? And then as she was going, say, this doesn't feel safe and then just park her bike and walk and and budget enough time so that even walking would help her arrive on time to her meeting and then all the support she would have in her meeting. And so she agreed to do all the things. So she she did her um, or leaving class early. She did ride her bike. She rode with somebody. She was able to ride the whole way there and she did go to her meeting. And then at the end, when I was checking in on her, I'm like, how did it go? She's like, well, you know, I didn't want to do it. And then, you know, I, I, she's let me off early and that felt okay. And then I got on my bike and she said, and I realized I was riding my aunt's bike and my aunt has passed away. And it is my aunt the whole way I knew was with me as I was riding. And then I was riding and riding and I got off my bike, but I knew my aunt was still with me when I went to the meeting and the meeting was great and I can't wait to do the work. And, and I just know my aunt is with me. And I thought, there you go. Like that is how we all do our hard things, right? We figure out who are the people supporting us, even if they're not physically there. Why do I want to do this? Why will I work through this hard thing? How do I get through it? And when I get on the other side, how do I recognize I did all those hard things? And to me, it was just such a, a moment of growth for her. Because then it was like, well, if your aunt is with you riding your bike and going to this first meeting, your aunt's going to be with you on all your hard things, right? And so is your mom and your brother and your sister and all the people and us who are supporting you to live this independent life. So I think like the fierce dedication to being as independent as possible that our students have and how they work through so many hard things every single day to get to that other side has been the best part of watching the program. That's amazing. And it's always encouraging to hear uh, when, you know, when students succeed, when they figure it out and they, they figure out that they can do it. Um, I'm, it's, it's great that there's space for uh, individuals with intellectual disabilities to do that in the Redwood Seed program. So uh, as we as we get toward an end point here, um, how has your mindset changed as you've navigated a grant, the opening, leading a program, co-directing the program, and really, you know, as you just described, helping to transform the lives of students? Um, well, I, I've always felt, so, so I, in my education, I didn't have people with intellectual disabilities learning alongside me, and they weren't present in my high school, they weren't present in my college, mm -hmm. certainly not in my teacher education prep, and then when I was teaching, uh, you know, I began teaching in the late 80s and taught all through the 90s, and we didn't even have words for self-regulation and executive mm -hmm. functioning and mm -hmm. 
autism or autistic spectrum disorder or all sorts of educational research and data on how to support these students. We had no language for that, right? So, so seeing students have language, have skills, have data and knowledge and know, you know, what's possible. I guess my mindset has completely moved to we're all better when we're learning alongside each other. When we do make things accessible, we're making it accessible for everyone. And so universal design in physical spaces, universal design in you know workplaces, all of that matters and makes our society better. So my, I guess my mind shift has been to just be even more inclusive than possible because there's always the one person who's like, oh, no, we can't support you. You know, whatever your extenuating circumstances are. No, actually, you don't belong here. The truth is everyone belongs here. So how do we make it happen so that everyone can be successful in this space? Everyone matters. And when they're missing, we're missing something important. And you're finding a way to do that in really tangible terms here. Thanks for sharing all of the details and the the really nuanced approaches that the Redwood Seed program at UC Davis is is taking. Beth Foraker, thanks for your time today on Mindset in Motion. We're really happy to hear about your program and look forward to its success. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you so much. If you have questions for me or just want to talk about your institution, connect with me at bheinrich at orbiscommunications.com or check out our website at orbiscommunications.com.